Blog Talk Radio. Hey, it's Jason Lucart back after a couple weeks away for episode seven of Let's Talk Tribe. Uh, I've been in Tanzania for a couple weeks, first climbing Mount Kilimanjaro and then the safari. And uh, while I was gone, Indians played pretty well. They've uh, gone 10 and 5 since I left, although right now that's overshadowed by the fact that they're 0 and 4 most recently. A uh, pretty brutal four-game sweep at the hands of Detroit, which I think probably effectively ends the AL Central race. Uh, and put the Indians into a position where it's wild card or bust. Um, so certainly it's been a frustrating series, and we'll get back to that in a minute. But uh, I think most Indians fans, if you had said before the season that with the middle of August approaching, they'd uh, you know be within, I think, three games of a playoff spot, uh, I think reasonable fans would have taken that, uh, given how the team finished last season. So... Uh, it's been a frustrating week, but I think if you can get beyond those four games, uh, you've got to feel pretty good about how the Indians have been playing. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm going to bring on my guest for this week. He's a Let's Go Tribe regular and also an anthropology professor at Wellesley College. Uh, my guest this week is Mr. Adam Van Arsdale. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jason. And uh, welcome back from Tanzania, I should say. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, And for those of you listening, Adam is the one person I knew before I went who had climbed Kilimanjaro before. So at some point, we'll probably talk at least a little bit about that. Um, But we'll we'll start with baseball. We'll we'll start with the worst of it, the series that just ended a few minutes ago against Detroit. Um, Rough stuff. How, How was it for you? I mean, it was pretty brutal. I'm trying to think of a more deflating series in the last, say, going back to 2005. And aside from the end of the end of the season there in 2007 when we failed, or 2005, 2007, I'm blanking now, when we failed to make the postseason, I think this is about the most deflating series I can remember. So pretty rough. I think, uh, you know, I, I got back – Yesterday, I got back Wednesday afternoon, and uh, so I was able to check the stands for the first time in a while, and, uh, you know, without seeing the specifics of who they'd beaten and who they'd lost to, just saw where they were at and felt pretty good about it, and uh, had some other stuff going on, jet lag, fell asleep for a while in the afternoon. Anyway, came to just in time to uh, to watch the eighth inning last night and was surprised to see Salazar still in. And then really surprised to see him still in against Cabrera. And then 450 feet later, there it went. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, mean, I think that was a surprising move, move but uh, but not necessarily surprising if you look at how Francona has managed the team all year. I mean, I think if we have any read on Francona's managerial style from this year, it's that he gives a lot of deference to players. And goes out of his way to show trust in players. I think we saw that in Reynolds getting put out there in the lineup day after day, week after week, just by the fact that he stopped hitting anything after May 1st. And I think we saw that in Salazar and showing a vote of confidence to throw him up there for a fourth time against Cabrera. And obviously that was a mistake, uh, perhaps a very costly mistake. Uh, Maybe in the long term it was beneficial for Salazar's development, but 
certainly not good for the, the player of that game last night. Yeah, I think for me, you know, I mean, looking at it, where his pitch count and stuff was, I can see sending him out there for the eighth inning. Um, Although even with his pitch count, I mean, all year long he's basically been rarely, if ever, over 85 pitches, and he was up to about 100 pitches by then. So even that yeah, that's a good point. questionable. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, yeah, I was looking. I think he was at 90 pitches, 91 entering the eighth, which isn't a drum. But you're right. I hadn't thought about the fact that uh, he, he has been on a pretty – low pitch count for most of the season. In any case, I, I think you let him go out, you know, if you let him go out there, so be it. But I feel like as soon as Hunter got on base, no matter who is coming up, I think I would have pulled him. But certainly with, you know, probably the best hitter in baseball coming up, uh, you know, yeah. vote of confidence or not, I think at that point you turn it over to your 17-man bullpen and <laughs> take your chances. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was definitely a bad decision. I mean, I think Salazar was incredibly impressive the entire night, and even actually how he walked up the field after giving up that hit. But um, I think it was definitely a mistake to keep him out there. And a mistake that, yeah. you know, if they need to be able to win that third game of the series and maybe come back in tonight's game with a little more confidence, the season would be looking very different right now. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, going into the series, they're down three to Detroit. And they take a 2 nothing lead into the ninth inning. So you're on the verge of two games out of first place. They would have been in possession of the second wild card spot at that point if they'd won. And then Chris Perez came apart. And I think it was Alex Avila with a big shot, a three-run home run. Um, and, yeah, it's just sort of been downhill from there. And, again, you know, last night, like you were saying, the Salazar game, a really good opportunity to win that got away. And then tonight they just got destroyed. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it really I, mean I was, does, I was thankful for the ending of tonight's game. Having Ryan Rayburn pitch the ninth was kind of uh, the perfect way to ease the blow of the four-game loss. Any right. other comical note as opposed to a tragic note? <laughs> yeah, Rayburn's gonna—he's gonna earn that extension. Um, yeah, I do. You, I I think the AL Central's over. I think at this point, do you? Would you agree with that, or do you think there's still, you know, Detroit might come apart? What do you think? I think it's hard to imagine the Indians catching Detroit. I mean, the way it would be miraculous, given the way Detroit has manhandled Cleveland all year, to think of them surpassing them. Uh, I mean, certainly it's mathematically possible. They've got one more three-game series left. So, you know, if you imagine a scenario where they sweep Detroit in that three-game series, then they've got to make up four games. And you can imagine that happening. But, I mean, I think you can be a loyal Cleveland fan and acknowledge that Detroit is simply a better team than Cleveland right now. They have been basically yeah. all season. And I, I think you can have head matchups. Yeah. I mean, I think Detroit, you could make as good or better a case for them as the best team in baseball. I think they're uh, – Boston's on the verge of losing tonight. They're down 4 nothing in the eighth. If they lose tonight, Detroit takes over the top record in the American League – they already have the best run differential in baseball. I mean, I think they have probably the best starting rotation, arguably the best lineup. Um, yeah, I mean, we don't have to like it, but I think if you're if you're being honest, Detroit's the better team. And that doesn't mean there's not room for the Indians to still make the playoffs. But, uh, yeah, I think yeah, the wild I can card agree with that wholeheartedly. Well, once the playoffs start, obviously, then everything goes up in the air. But Yeah, Detroit's exactly. A very solid team. Yeah. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, I think the wild, and I thought going into the season, if they got into the playoffs, it was going to be as a wild card. You know, the second wild card spot lowers the bar a little bit, and uh, I think the Indians right now are three games behind Oakland or Texas, or Oakland and Texas, I think, are tied for the West, so one of them yeah, would be the second. Yeah, Baltimore is up there, a game and a half behind them, so yeah. a few teams ahead of us now in the pecking order. Right. But, but yeah, uh, I think, no, I mean, I think this, four-game series doesn't change the fact that it has been a very positive season for Cleveland so far. I mean, they've been a much better team than they've been the past five years this year. And it's yeah. not a fluke. I mean, I think it's a legitimate reflection of the talent that's on the team right now. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, the team's in contention in August. And so if you're in contention in August and you don't make the playoffs, you know, that's that's disappointing on one level. But I think I feel like a lot of Tribe fans have already sort of forgotten how terrible the team was, you know, for the last 50, 60 games last year. And that, you know, if if they end this year with 82, 83 wins, that's going to be like a 15-game improvement, which is a huge improvement. Uh, Oh, yeah. I mean, I think definitely that's the case. And, again, I mean, last year in August they just completely fell off the planet. I mean, they were just disastrously bad, and it seemed last year to be a coming down to earth, like a true reflection of the lack of talent that was on the roster last August and September. But I think this year, I mean, I think there's still a lot more talent there. I see on my Twitter feed that the Indians are holding a players-only meeting after this uh, game tonight, and I think that Francona will have more control over the clubhouse, and there are more veterans around the clubhouse. I don't think this team is going to give up in these last two months of the season. Yeah, I don't either. And I think I, mean, I think the big thing is there's just more talent on the roster. And, you know, every year you have a couple teams that really play above their heads and a couple teams that really play below it. But, um, you know, chemistry, any of that stuff, I, I don't know how you quantify that. If that's, but I think just the team has more talent this year. And, yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't see them totally coming apart like they did last year. And, you know, hopefully they put the series behind them and get back on track this weekend. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned Ryan Rayburn, and he signed an extension. Was it, I think just yesterday, recently anyway, uh, locking him up for the next couple of years. Um, how do you? You know, I don't want to get too far into a conversation about past this season because there's a lot to talk about for this season. But uh, how do you feel about what the Indians are doing to position themselves for 2014 and beyond that? I mean, I think this is a good signing. I think Rayburn has a lot of value, um, especially for Cleveland. I mean, Cleveland still lacks depth on the corners, and Rayburn feels that very well. He's clearly a you know, well-liked guy, and he's played super well this year. I mean, he's the kind of guy, if we didn't sign for an extension, you'd want Cleveland to go out and sign a guy like Ryan Rayburn this offseason. Right. The fact that he's already in the clubhouse just makes it all the better. And obviously, you know, the money involved is fairly inconsequential. You know, it's getting less than $5 million for two years, so... Um, no, I think it was a, a solid addition. Yeah, I do too. I think, uh, like you said, his versatility is such a big plus. I think when you're when your backups can play multiple positions, it just gives a manager a lot more flexibility and options to, you know, try to find the optimal lineup for each game. And uh, yeah, like you said, the money is is so little that. You know, if he turns back into the player he was last year with Detroit, then you're still not really out anything. I guess you're out of roster spot, but um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, he forms a natural platoon with studs. He gives uh, Chisholm Hall a backup option, and we don't 
really have a regular first baseman. So, I mean, he fills potentially all of those roles. In addition right. to potentially, you know, having imaginably the flexibility of filling in for Kipnis on a, a day now and then as well. Right. Um, opposite end, Mark Reynolds today designated for assignment, probably finishing his time with the Indians. Uh, boy, that the wheels really came off the wagon quickly, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, I, I somewhere on the side I posted today. If you go back through May first, I mean, you know, not even really thirty games into the season, he basically stopped hitting altogether. Um, yeah. That said, I saw someone posted maybe on maybe this was on waiting waiting for next year, um, how the signing was a mistake, how you know it was a failed signing, which I actually disagree with. He was so good in April that it was clear why the Indians took the chance on him. And he right. carried the team you know, on his back with several wins in April. But you had to be prepared for some kind of boom and bust and hope for another boom. But I think if there's a criticism of Reynolds on the team this year, it's not that they went out and signed him and brought him in. I think he was a good fit for the team, and we saw that in April. It's that they didn't cut ties with him earlier. Uh, I mean, at a certain point, you know, maybe that point was July 1st, I think they – probably should have cut their losses with him and, and gone in a different direction. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, not that you want dead weight on the roster, but if you're not going to, you know, cut ties with him to find a way to get him off the field more often, I mean, I, I mean, you're right. He he was so good in April. I think it's hard to feel bad about the signing when, you know, one month like that is worth, you know, a couple wins maybe, um, you know, $6 million. But, God, he he just took so much off the table the last month. Uh, yeah, I mean it was certainly painful seeing him. Yeah, it was painful seeing him play uh, key at bats in July when you've got Ryan Rayburn, Jan Gomez, and Michael Vila sitting on the bench. might work as Baltimore has apparently expressed some interest and depending on how the waivers go, maybe the Indians even get something back for him. But I think it's best just to, you know, see it as <laughs> the end of the chapter. Yeah. Well, I always have to, uh, you know, walk off home run against Oakland. And I think that's, uh, that's what we got. Yeah. Um, Just again, you know, I didn't see any games for two weeks, and so it's just trying to kind of go back and look at things. It, it from the scores anyway, the offense has sort of been struggling for the last week or so, um, with the pitching doing pretty well. Uh, what are your what's your take on the rotation at this point? I am, you know, pretty pleased with the rotation. I mean. Rivaldo Jimenez is something of a mess, but that's not surprising. But in general, I think the rotation has played far above expectations. I think Scott Kavner has been the most enjoyable storyline to follow all season on Cleveland. It's not one of the most enjoyable storylines to follow in all, in all of baseball this year. Um, but you look at Masterson has been pretty consistently good. Kavner has gotten just better and better and better. Um, Corey Kluber has been phenomenal. And you watch him pitch now, and you realize that as soon as whatever he did last year, I saw a story that he changed his grip midway through last season that allowed him to get better command of his pitches. 
his pitches are legit. He might never have been a top prospect, but he always had high strikeout rates. He always had lots of whiffs. And you can see it because he's got good stuff. And when he can man it, he's a, he's a legitimate pitcher. Um, you know, McAllister has been up and down a little bit. Um, and Danny Salazar has been, like, watching the reincarnated ghost of Adam Miller. Uh, <laughs> you know, here he is pitching, you know, triple-digit fastballs uh, and then great breaking stuff and uh, plus change-up. It's like what Adam Miller was supposed to be, only in the flesh. Again, he comes out one or two hitters sooner last night, and you're looking at you know one of the best two game debuts in in Indian history. And he was the first Indians pitcher with ten strikeouts once of his first two games. that game and Salazar I don't think walked anyone maybe walked one but I don't think he walked anyone last night and uh you know coming off of his, his debut a few weeks ago which was you know probably even more impressive um so yeah I mean it's been I guess it's going to be out about a month maybe a little longer than that with a sprained finger I think that's uh, a tough injury at a tough time for the Indians. Um, you know, we'll see. I, I mean, I guess that means Salazar probably just holds that rotation spot for the time being. But uh, it certainly hurts to lose Kluber. Yeah, it definitely hurts to hurtly lose him. And you worry about with a finger injury about whether or not he'll be able to come back with the same command that's really given him the success that he's had this year. Um, right. but a number of people have noted that uh, it's the same injury basically that Zach McAllister had, so he's got an in-house uh, mentor to help him through the, the rehab from it. Because uh, I think Corey Kluber is a legitimate part of the rotation moving forward, you know, beyond this season. Yeah, I do too. I mean, I think, you know, after Masterson, he's, you know, he's who I'd put next on the list. Um, like you said, you know, turn into better pitchers than they were ever expected to be, and it seems like he's one of those guys. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, it's really amazing uh, that the Indians have pulled these pitchers really out of nowhere this year, which is encouraging right. because if you look at the farm system, there isn't much in the way of starting pitching depth there, but maybe some of these guys could also be pulled out of the ashes like uh, Casimir and Kluber have been this year. I think Trevor Bauer, I certainly, I thought by now Trevor Bauer would be in the rotation, and he hasn't really developed, you know, this season the way I think, you know, Indians figured out by next year. I feel like, you know, the, the, the potential's there for, you know, not a rotation, but a fairly solid rotation. And, yeah, that's not something I expected going into the season. I'm with you. I think the the starters have, have really outperformed expectations and been a really pleasant surprise. And, uh, you know, if they keep it going and the offense comes out of this mini funk, there's, there's plenty of time to make up three games in the wild card race. Oh, yeah. But if you had told me at the beginning of the season that uh, Trevor Bauer would have had the season that he's had, I would think that would be one of the biggest disappointments of the year. And yet, the fact is, the starting pitching has pitched well enough that it's barely even noticeable that Bauer hasn't showed up this yeah. year. So. 
No, it's true. I mean, you know, Inabaldo continues to be sort of up and down and frustrating, but he's had some good starts. And I mean, he's been certainly a lot better than he was last year. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this is the best season we've gotten out of Inabaldo, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think at this point, the Indians rotation doesn't feel like a weakness. And that's a a huge change from both last season and what I thought would come from this season going into it. So it's been good to see you. The bullpen yeah, seems I mean, like a mess. You look at but... You know, they've had 15 shutouts this year. So they've gone out and won a bunch of games. But even the games that they haven't gone out and won, you know, they've oftentimes consistently been putting Cleveland in a position where they could win. You know, tonight yeah. was one of those nights. But most of the games this year, the pitching has held up pretty well. Right. Yeah, and... You know, so we'll see what happens. We got what forty-five, fifty games left, something like that, and uh, you know, these last four days are pretty low. But uh, I think you know, ten and one over the previous week and a half before that. So it's still you know a ten and five stretch that are on here, and you know, if they take two or three this weekend, I think you know it'll be easy to kind of put the trophy. Hopefully contending through the rest of the year, and we'll see what happens. I mean, like you, as you said before, you get into the playoffs, anything can and will happen. Yeah. And again, I mean, even if the tribe doesn't make the playoffs, you know, if they finish the season ten games above five hundred, uh, twelve games above five hundred, you know, I think that's a big accomplishment. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, go, going beyond this season again, and not to say that there's not. That we need to look past this season, but if you do, I mean, it's not like, you know, the the centrals shouldn't look massively different next year. I don't think so. If they can, you know, a couple guys come along and bounce back. I mean, they're in a position where I think the window of contention is, you know, they're fortunate to play in a division with only one real power, and they ought to have a good chance going into things for the time being. No, I think that's uh, definitely the case. Have you, who's been, so, you know, we talked about the starting rotation being, you know, a pleasant surprise. Uh, what's been the big disappointment of this season for you if you had to, you know, single one or two guys out? Um, I mean, I would say, uh, you know, it would have been nice to have gotten more out of Nick Swisher this year, a little more power out of him. Looks like he actually in the last week has been coming out of this funk a little bit. Um, Ball Cabrera has been, I think, disappointing. Um Obviously, the issues around whether to trade him or, or not at the the deadline are something we could talk more about. I, I'm not disappointed they didn't trade him. Uh, I would have been pretty excited probably if we could have gotten one of St. Louis's young pitchers. Uh, yeah. But that's that's sort of a different topic. I, I think in terms of disappointment, one of my uh, frustrations has been, you know, the the weak link on the team somewhat this year has been the bullpen which is frustrating only in the sense that the Indians actually have a lot of bullpen depth sitting in Columbus and Akron that I think could have been called upon earlier and more consistently to fill in some of those holes. Um, you know, there's a lot of talented relievers in Akron and Columbus. If you go through the strikeout rates of those guys, there's half a dozen guys who are doing really, really well. I think you could have helped out this year at times. Um, yeah. You know, I think they could have taken Tostano down earlier, I think. Rich Hill shouldn't have necessarily been around here. Um, even Alvarez, I think, probably could have gone someplace earlier. 
Yeah, I, I think, I mean, a, a mediocre bullpen is, is frustrating because losing games once you're leading them is, you know, to me anyway, a lot more aggravating than just getting killed. Like, a, you know, 10-3 tonight, you just sort of make your peace with it pretty early on, and that's that. But when you're yeah. leading a game in the seventh or eighth inning and then it falls apart, it's, for me anyway, it's more frustrating. Um, and the bullpen have been pretty good. So, yeah, that I think you're right. That's been uh, a disappointment. I mean, and if we were to like, single out one specific example of that, um, the fact that Blake Wood is still on the roster here August, almost August 9th, um, and hasn't seen any time in Cleveland, and we prioritize the spot for him when – T.J. McFarland has been pitching pretty well for Baltimore as a left-hander out of the pen all year. And basically that Blakewood spot could have easily been T.J. McFarland's spot had they decided to protect him for the Rule 5 draft last year. You know, there have been a lot of times in June when Rich Hill was struggling that I would have much rather had T.J. McFarland come out there. And there's no guarantee that McFarland would have necessarily been able to perform the way he has for Baltimore with us. But I think that's an example of the frustration of um, roster management as it relates to the bullpen. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, you're right. I mean, in, I think you made a good point too there, though, that, you know, who knows what he would have done. But it's just been frustrating to watch the bullpen struggle and, you know, wonder who else maybe could have been in there. Um, you know, you you blow a few games, and at the end of the season, you finish four or five games out of a playoff spot. And, you know, almost every team is going to blow about the same number of games. But I think for a team that doesn't have a big payroll, uh, you know, a successful bullpen is something that becomes an even bigger priority. Yeah. Uh, and I'm with you on Swisher, too. I mean, Swisher, I mean, certainly I was excited when they signed him. Um but the season he's having and, you know, the years and money he's got left, there's certainly the potential for that to turn into a awfully problematic contract. Um, I'm optimistic it will still turn out well. I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of pressures, I think. And, you know, coming into Cleveland, I think he was expected to be more of a centerpiece than he's been on these other clubs where there are these massive superstars, you know, in New York and, and elsewhere. And, right. Um, I mean, you get the sense just watching the games that he might have struggled with that a little bit. As much as he's got a bravado in the clubhouse, he seems much comfortable hitting in the two-hole than he does in the, the cleanup spot. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, maybe he'll move past that the longer he, he, he sticks around. Yeah, well, hopefully you're right. <laughs> I don't think he's going anywhere, so yeah. hopefully he gets it going again. Um, yeah, I, I, I think uh, – you know, Swisher to some extent is Drupal Cabrera has been the big one for me. Um, you know, he's been a below average hitter and there's mixed takes on his defense. I don't think he's a very good defender either. Um, but. And, you know, yeah, with Cabrera, I, there's always been, he's always had the reputation that they kind of go through hot spells where he's really focused and, and into the game and phases where he just seems to just fade away. And this, team is in the midst of a season where there's every reason to be motivated and focused for every single game, and yet in that context, he really seems to be just another body really out there on the field. So that's... that's yeah. Cool. I mean, yeah, I think his his hitting has been not terrible, but about as bad as 
you know, any regular on the team. I mean, his on-base percentage is below 300 right now. Um, you know, I think you mentioned the trade deadline stuff and should he have been dealt. I don't think there's any chance he was going to be dealt because I think it just would have been perceived as, you know, a white flag kind of move. But uh, I I wouldn't have been angry if he'd, you know, not knowing what they would have gotten back from. But let's say, you know, one of those Cardinals pitchers, I wouldn't have had any problem with the Indians in contention trading Cabrera to get one of those guys, even if it was mostly about the future, just because, you know, I don't think the fall off from what Cabrera has been this year to Avila or whatever is, is worth getting out of shape. I've been fine with one of those trades in the off season. I'll be fine with one of those trades. I I have to think he's traded this off season. I mean, he's he's my only hesitation to that. I mean, I'd be right there with you. My only hesitation is that, I wonder how much his value has gone down this year. And if he doesn't have much value, I don't think there's any reason for Cleveland to trade him. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I again, we, we have not, obviously neither of us knows what the Indians might have been able to get for him right now. But, I mean, if the, yeah. if the Cardinals really were – I mean, the Cardinals were said to have been offering their pitching for Alexa Ramirez and the White Sox. And Cabrera certainly, you know, I think would have, have more value or at least as much value as him. Um, yeah. And you know, if you look at the, the Cardinals needs, in addition to needing if the Cardinals were still offering someone like that, that makes me feel like, you know, he's still got some value. Yeah. Does a guy have more trade value, you know, at the deadline in a pennant race or during the off season? And I don't know, but. Yeah. Now, the conversation um, with St. Louis was that I really felt like there was a perfect matchup there. St. Louis's two needs at the deadline are really a backup catcher and a starting shortstop. And we're flush with backup catchers, and we've got a starting <laughs> shortstop. We're ready to move. So I would right. like to see that trade. You know, some package of, like, Azrael Cabrera and Roberto Perez for one of those pitchers would have made me pretty happy. Yeah. No, I feel the same way. I think in terms of the Cardinals, I think been sort of a, a perfect matchup at a at a good time. And, you know, I we'll see what happens. Um but yeah, for me, Cabrera has been the big disappointment this year. Uh, and we'll see. You know, maybe he he starts running hot again, and uh, you know, there, there's plenty of baseball left. Oh yeah. You'll um, talk a little bit about the experience of, of Kilimanjaro since you've done it. Um, and how long ago? How many years back was it that you climbed? So I summited the mountain on uh, 5 a.m. the morning of Christmas Day 2004, so almost a decade ago. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, and you were, I think you told me you were you were in Kenya at the time? You were working in Kenya? Yeah, or? I had been in uh, Kenya for the previous three months, basically doing museum work in Nairobi and then some field work in the Rift Valley in Kenya. Um, and I basically... The holidays came around, the museum shut down, I was done with the work that I needed to do. So I went into a travel agency on Thursday, and by Saturday I was on the on the mountain, completely unprepared. <laughs> I had rented shoes, rented jacket, rented hat, rented gloves, rented everything. Um, but I had a great time, it was a great experience. Yeah, I mean, for me too. I Opposite in terms of I was planning this for quite some time, and had what I think was pretty good gear for it. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly a pretty incredible experience. I mean, when you look back at it nine years later, uh, I would guess standing at the top is one of the things that stands out for you. Um, are there other things that you still kind of jump to mind when you think of that experience? Standing at the top at the top is actually best memorable for me because we summited very early. It was like 4 a.m. when we got to the ramp, maybe even earlier. And it was really, really, really cold and very windy. Yeah. And I had had a ton of energy going up the summit. I had been going very quickly, great spirits. Um, but I got to the top and all my rental clothes, it turns out, were not very warm. I got tired <laughs> and it was dark. There was no sunshine still. So... I was so exhausted by the time we actually got to that sign because it takes about an hour and a half to go from where I reached the rim to actually get to the summit. And by the time right. we got there, I was so tired and so cold that I had to be convinced to stand up to take a picture there. <laughs> <laughs> My guide had to, like, pick me up and make me take a picture. Um, but the, that morning as we were going up the slope towards the summit, I, we left at midnight and like I said, got to the rim about 4 a.m., and it was spectacular because there had been a fresh snowfall um, and there was an almost full moon. So you, it was like I had walked into an Ansel Adams photograph. There was this black rock highlighted by this white dusting of snow all lit by the moon. I mean, it was just totally spectacular. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it is pretty spectacular up there. I had sort of the inverse experience of you in that uh, I didn't feel terrible on the walk up. Uh, and I wasn't actually all that cold, but, uh, I mean, it was just slow going and exhausting. You know, the air gets so thin and I, I never totally adjusted to the altitude, I don't think. Um, so for me, for, I think we came up a different side of the mountain from you. Um, yeah. and, uh, so from like leaving base camp to getting to the rim was about, uh, like five and a half hours and then a little less than an hour once we were on the rim to the actual peak. Okay. Um, and for most of that five and a half hours, I was literally just watching the the boots of the guide in front of me, uh, you know, one small, slow step at a time. And it was a really clear night. The stars were incredible. And every once in a while, I would look up and, you know, take that in. But mostly it was just saying, but then we got up to the rim and he said, oh, you know, we'll be there in 45 minutes. And I got like a huge, you know, adrenaline boost or whatever and was practically dancing along <laughs> the rim at 19,000 feet. And felt I felt better, you know, at the top than I did anywhere else along the mountain. Yeah, um, we definitely have the opposite experiences. <laughs> like I, I needed no one to prompt me to stand and take a picture. Um yeah, I mean, it is just pretty spectacular to be up that high and looking out in these huge glaciers on one side. And the timing for when we were there, we got there a little later, and the sun was was during the walk along the rim, which was pretty incredible. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, a, a really memorable experience. Um, Mark, for me, along the way, I had a couple of pretty awful days. I mean, the altitude sickness. Uh, you know, they talk about some people you get really sick to your stomach and you're throwing up constantly. And I didn't have any of that. I didn't have headaches or dizziness. Um, I couldn't sleep. And I didn't, I didn't oh, yeah. know that was, I didn't know that might be an issue. Um, and, you know, so I had like a, a stomach medication in case I got sick and never really needed it. You know, I had Advil and stuff or, you know, but 
it didn't occur to me that I might not sleep. And I had a couple nights that I didn't sleep at all. And, you know, carrying the pack around, walking for hours and hours on no sleep. Uh, there were a couple of points yeah. when I felt like I was just about cashed out. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I was lucky because I had been in Nairobi and in the highlands of Kenya for the previous, like I said, about three months. So I had yeah. been above 6,000 feet for a, a fair amount of time. Plus, right. I, I used to be a swimmer all through high school and college, so I had a pretty good set of lungs. So the altitude, for the most part, it didn't really get to me. Um, yeah. I, I did have some issues with sleeping, but only because I was hiking solo, you know, aside from my guide and stuff. And so I ended up getting paired with this other guy who was hiking solo, who was the worst snorer that I've ever come across <laughs> in my entire life. Uh, and it was such a, like, a chaotic, inconsistent kind of snoring that that was the only thing that prevented me from sleeping, not the altitude. Yeah. Yeah, I shared a tent with a stranger, but uh, he, he was a, he was a good tent partner. He, he was a, a sound sleeper and, and gave me no trouble at all. The inability to sleep was entirely on me. Um, but, you know, got just enough rest at just the right time, made it to the top. And uh, yeah, it's a heck of a feeling to be up there. And uh, I plan on modeling myself off R.A. Dickey, who climbed Kilimanjaro and then came back and won a Cy Young Award. So if Trevor Bauer is not ready for next year, I'm going to offer my services to the Indians. Oh, man, I guess I missed my window. My window was back in the, the 2005 season. Maybe I could have carried the drive <laughs> into you, the playoffs that year. Could have been the difference. We've already talked about divisions probably over wild cards, uh, you know, in play. What do you expect? I mean, three weeks from now, are the Indians going to still be right in the thick of it? Or are they going to drop, you know, six, seven games back and have a winning record, but out of contention the last couple of weeks? What do you – I think they're going to be in the thick of it for the wild card. I think Baltimore and Texas, Texas especially, have uh, issues going forward. And I think it will be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, you know, as it's been widely reported, the Indians have a very favorable schedule, particularly against those AL East teams um, right. for the remainder of the season. So I think Cleveland is definitely far from out of it. Um, I think the idea of winning the division is a remote possibility, but winning the wild card is a real possibility. So, I, I mean, yeah. I think it'll be interesting to see how the team rallies from this four-game, you know, sweep. Um, but if they come back, and I expect they will, I expect them to be in it. And then I think it'll be interesting to see how the team manages its roster in September. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, September's sort of the wild, wild west in terms of expanded roster. Yeah. And... Um. You kind of broke up on me on that one. I didn't hear that question. still in play, feel free, but I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, I think the wild card needs to be the focus. Uh, 
looking at Oakland, looking at Baltimore City. But uh, we've got about a quarter of the season left, and the Indians are still in it. So uh, have a stiff drink, put the Detroit series behind you, and we'll see what happens the rest of the way. And uh, now that I'm back, uh, let's talk tribal back. And so I will talk to you next week. Thanks a lot.